Vista. Uh, Roberto and Sarah do a great job, and Spencer and Bob with the That was just a real blessing, and we're really fortunate to have those folks. So I, I, I wish I could have been singing a little bit with you, but uh, I uh, really enjoy that. Want to again uh, make sure you all know what a wonderful privilege it is for me to come up here and share with you. Um, I really appreciate uh, Brother Truman giving me that opportunity, and I, I do appreciate it. And again, I do thank all of you for your prayers. Um, uh, I do have a voice today. How long I have a voice will be interesting, but I, 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 I do thank you for your prayers. And uh, so let me open us up with a, with a word of prayer. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, you are so good to us, Lord. And we just thank you, Lord, for the opportunity just to gather as believers and dive into your word and learn your truths and learn more about you as we do so. And I just thank you for that, Lord. Lord, I'd ask you that uh, as I speak today, Lord, that I would just simply be your channel, Lord, that I would be your vessel through which your words are spoken so that the folks here, their hearts can be touched by that, their minds opened, and their eyes to see something about you, Lord, that is so wonderful and beautiful. Lord, I just ask that everything we do here today, that it would glorify you, Lord. And if there's anything that I say that today that is not according to your will, I'd ask that you would just have it be blotted out. But Lord, I just raise you up and praise you and thank you for your goodness. And we just ask that you be with us throughout this rest of this day in your son's precious name. Amen. Hopefully you remember, two weeks ago I, I taught, and my wife told me that that was kind of like taking a drink out of a fire hose. So I apologize a little bit about that, but I suspect I may be doing it again to you, so I'll try not to. Um, but last, two weeks ago, I spoke to you on the topic of eternal security, or as I told you, I prefer to call it the believer's eternal assurance of their salvation. And I shared that this is an area of some debate within Christian circles, and it's often a point of confusion or doubt with some authentic followers of Jesus Christ, particularly those who are sort of new Christians, you know, early in their faith, and also some of those who are, who are about ready to face death. I also shared with you I have some uh, concerns about two expressions that are uh, capture this, and the first being the perseverance of the saints, which is what John um, Calvin used, and what, what, what he meant by that was the fact that if you're saved, it's God's power that will preserve you to the end. However, what's happened in a lot of Christianism today is a lot of people have taken that to mean their own effort. They have to use their own effort to stay saved, and that's absolutely contrary to Scripture. And the other was the one, once saved, always saved, and I've used that, I have to be honest. But the concern with that sometimes is people think, well, I said a prayer 20 years ago, but I can go live like the devil, but I'm still saved. I had a good friend one time say, yeah, I was, going to get in, I was going to get into heaven by my fingertips. I was going to dance with the devil, but I was going to get pulled in by my fingertips. Um, so that's the sense that sometimes that, that can be some confusion with that. So I shared with you some scripture that teaches the truth about that. And we started really looking first that it was a, an article of faith of, uh, here at uh, New Life Baptist Church. But we did look at several of those. But this week's uh, message to you is really, next slide, <laughs> it, it, it's that one where, well, what about those difficult passages that are used to, buy, to deny a believer's assurance of salvation? And I'm going to be really focusing on four of those. John, which we read the, earlier this morning. We're going to look at Hebrews, Second Peter, and also James. And the other two there... Um, are used, but uh, quite frankly, I, I think it's a really weak argument on their part, so I won't spend too much time on that. But before we begin, let me give us, just get us grounded again on foundation and, and cover briefly what we covered two weeks ago to make sure that we've got that established. And we first learned at that time that believers can and should be assured of their salvation based on the objective promises of God's Word. However, since some genuine Christians can lack assurance, there is also that practical subjective evidence of salvation in believers' lives that will help establish that assurance. The Bible teaches that both of these will lead to one's insurance and that both are a work 
of the Holy Spirit. The objective basis, as we talked about, was the finished work of Christ on the cross and the promises of assurance found in Scripture. And the subjective is the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit in the lives of Christians, convicting and sanctifying them. I shared with you a a quote from John MacArthur where he says, Scripture makes it abundantly clear that believers should not only enjoy assurance of their salvation, but cultivate it as well. So let's briefly look at New Life's uh, statement of faith on this matter. And again, I'm going to read this, but it might be good if everybody, when you did this, read read it with me as we do this, okay? The eternal security and assurance of believers. We believe that all redeemed, once saved, are kept by God's power and thus secure in Christ forever. We believe it's a privilege of believers to rejoice in the assurance of their salvation through the testimony of God's Word, which however clearly forbids the use of Christian liberty as an occasion to the flesh. We then looked at a number of scriptures. And this is, I guess, where my wife told me it was the uh, taking a drink out of a fire hose. But I'm just going to quickly review the first three just to make sure we're grounded, and then we'll get into our, our, our topics for today with regards to that. But the question on the objective is, is do you believe what God's Word is saying? So if we look at the first, first Peter, there was two things I really tried to emphasize with you. Next slide. <laughs> uh, and then what some of those the original Greek language. The important thing about the tenses are it was written in such a way that it's a past tense that this has already happened and fully something that is casual. It was full in a sort of a permit with it with the tenses. And it talked about that inheritance that is, is permanent with us or established. And we describe that inheritance with these words that were very, very powerful. The first was incorruptible, which means imperishable, not subject to being able to pass away or decay. Essentially, it means it's death-proof for us as believers. Undefiled means it's un- unpolluted, it's unstained by evil, it can't be diminished, and it remains perfect forever. The word fadeth not away means it can't wither or decay, there's no variation, and then it means it's eternally secure. Reserved means that it's completely been secured for another, and it's held for that other at a later date, which means that it's already been reserved for you, and it's being held for you. The word kept, I emphasize there for you, because the word kept means guarded. The actual meaning is guarded. And is that a wonderful assurance and blessing to know that the God of this universe, the most powerful, strongest of anything, is the one guarding your salvation. That's just, to me, just simply amazing. And then we looked over at John 10, 27, 29, right? And I shared with you again, John MacArthur says, there's no stronger passage for eternal security for the believer. And there's really some very interesting, and this one you get, we get more into the, the structure of, of the sentences. The, exp- the expression there, shall never perish, is the Greek structure of the language that is called what's called emphatic. And it means that it's absolute and there are no exceptions whatsoever. There can be no exceptions. It's also interesting that this expression is neither shall any man or no are, 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 are directives. They're telling you that these are absolutely going, this, is, there's, this will directively happen. It's going to happen. And I also shared with you the fact that neither any man includes all men, right? It includes all men. It doesn't say all other men but the believer. It says all men. And that includes the believer. The believer is not able to even take themselves out of a position of salvation. And what's interesting is, as I shared with you, I had another person tell me that, I agree, no one, can, no one else could cause me to lose my salvation, but I can jump out of God's hand. And he uses this verse. And it's, if he looked at what those words mean, he would recognize that that's contrary to the message in these verses. 
Also, a real comfort is the, word, the fact that uh, John used the word pluck. And pluck simply means to snatch away or to remove from one's already established and righteous, rightful place. Right? So they can't take you from that rightful, your, your, your rightful place. Last, we looked at John again, and uh, 6, 37 through 40. And again, he uses the word all which means everybody. It doesn't include, not except the, 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 the actual believer. There are expressions, giveth, cometh. They're all definitives again. They're written in a way in the Greek language that they cannot be changed. So I, yeah, the grammar structure sometimes is lost when we go from the Greek to the English. And it's really important sometimes that we dig back into that. I trust you can see that these prominent verses really give us an objective assurance of, the, of our salvation, that it is secure forever and it's being guarded by God. And then we talked briefly about the subjective side of this, of assurance. And we read Peter 2.1.10 where it says, Wherefore, the rather, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure, for if you do these things, ye shall never fall. And what this verse is saying, Peter's encouraging believers to self-examine their salvation to determine if their faith is real. Only by testing one's assurance by God's word can anyone be sure if he is or she is saved. A clear understanding of one's salvation is so vital. As believers, we need to subjectively examine our attitudes and accidents to evidence that we are truly saved. And then we looked at the two, you know, I get put, put up a few, uh, slides and I put them back there for handouts for two things, just two tools to help folks to do that. And one was that seven subjective elements of assurance that comes out of Romans. And then John's tests of assurance, which was 11 questions to ask yourself. And then last but not least, we talked about God's seal or a security of being the Holy Spirit. And we talked about the fact that the Holy Spirit is God's earnest or it's that down payment or guarantee for your salvation. The seal is an interesting word too. And I didn't share this with you last time. But when it's used as a noun, it's a marker symbol attached to a legal document. They would stamp wax at that time. And what it was intended to be was to be Visible evidence serving as assurance or confirmation or a bond. When it was used as a verb, it literally means to assure, to confirm, or bind. But it also, interestingly, means to grant under one's authority, which is God, a pardon. And isn't that wonderful that we've been pardoned, our sins have been pardoned. So we need to realize the Holy Spirit is a seal on our, as believers, our lives. It's God showing us that He is the one holding it. And then I ended with these five summaries of the uh, <coughs> eternal, excuse me about that, I apologize. That we are kept eternally or secure by God's power, not our own. No one or anything can snatch us from God's security, not even a believer. That believers in Christ will never face eternal judgment. All believers will come to God will never be cast out, and believers have been sealed by the Holy Spirit as an inheritance guarantee. So, that's last two weeks ago review. Let's, let's, let's jump into uh, what we want to discuss today. Hmm. Looking at really four of those six verses in detail, but as we delve into this topic, it's important that we keep in mind what, I guess several months ago when I talked about what, what true faith really is. It's important as you really understand that. And it's not what too often in today is just this sort of mental ascent belief. But the fact is, is the words that are used there, pistis really is meaning the whole person. In the Eastern culture, they don't separate like we do, the mind, the heart, and the will. So, true belief is, it involves the cognitive. It's true, the truth that's been presented. 
It's also in the heart. Call that the emotion. Some would call that the soul. But it's taking that truth and applying it to yourself and realizing it is true for you personally. And then you take that and you foundational part of how you approach life. And then it means that because you've done that, it guides the way that you act or the will on how you, you, you live your life. That is what true faith really is. Not, okay, I think that, uh, it's much more than that. Okay, and I used the example way back when I said, I believe there's a planet Saturn out there. Doesn't mean anything to me, really, right? But except it's a, it's a planet out there, right? It, it's got to be. It's, it means much more than that. Because we're going to look at the verses that I've got for us. There's three ways that people have interpreted or tried to apply these verses. And the first is the one which I want you to all walk away believing and, and agreeing with me on is the fact that in, these are, it's about individuals who profess faith in Christ, yet were never saved. And it goes back to what I just spoke to about faith and trust. There are those who use these verses, and these are the verses they like to point to. It's that it sh- this shows you that Christians can lose their salvation. And, and, and definitely used to, to teach that. And then there's a new one that came up, and I'm not even going to pay attention to it, but I just want to share with you because I stumbled across it. There are some theologians who say, well, these verses really are just simply a hypothetical. And they kind of show that if a believer could lose his salvation, all in all, it's impossible anyway. I mean, I, I don't understand their logic of why they would put that forth, but it seems to be becoming a little more prevalent in some of the uh, seminaries here. So... So now, if we've got these three um, interpretations, we have to understand how do we make sure, how do we evaluate whether what this interpretation or that interpretation is correct of these verses that have been, I'm going to... Every time when you really get into a a, a scripture, particularly one that might be a little bit more difficult, you first have to make sure you understand who the author groups you will use words differently. If you're talking to a bunch of mature believers, you're going to speak one way. When you're speaking with some you're speaking to somebody who's not saved, you might speak differently to them. And words might be confused otherwise. historical and culturally? What is the context? Remember I made the comment that this, this uh, apologist, uh, Greg Kokel, said, never just read a single verse. And his point is, is you can take all kinds of verses and twist them around if they're all by themselves. You have to keep them in the context of the passage as a whole. With regard, when, when you Also, we need to look at language, and you see I've been doing that with, with some of the verses already. What was the understanding of that word at the time it was written? You know, the English language is in many ways more restrictive than, than the Greek, definitely with the Hebrew, in the sense that, I'll give you an example. We use the word love, right? I think you all know the Greeks have several words for the word love, right? Eros, philos, agape. So we, we lose a little bit of the subtleties of language. So it's very helpful to back at the t- prominent meaning at the time was when they uh, it was written. We look for references. Is there a reference back into Old Testament with regards to what was said? And also, and most importantly, consistency. Whatever your interpretation is, it cannot contradict other Scripture. That's critically important. If it could contradict it, it would really put everything here up for debate. Right? Well, if it contradicts it, we know God can't lie. So what parts of this were not God-inspired and which ones were? 
So it can't contradict. Okay? So here we go. We looked at John 15, 1, 4. Let's, let's look at this. Who was the audience? Well, Jesus is speaking to who? His 11 disciples. 11? I thought there were 12. No, this is after Judas had left to go betray him. So they've left the upper room where he was telling them about what was about to happen, and now he's telling them what it is that's going to mean for them and what they need to be doing to, to, get, again, to make sure the word is, is shared. The context, I said, is Christ will soon be crucified, and, and he's, he's telling them what they must do. And the theme throughout this is really abiding in Christ, fruitfulness, and becoming more Christ-like and mature. Okay? So, let's look at this. First, it said, I want to set it really interesting. I am the true vine, and my father is the husbandman. This verse right here is actually a reference back to Ezekiel 15, 6-8, where Israel the vine, and used that example. Now Jesus is coming saying, no, no, no. Okay? Talks about the fact that the father is the husbandman. And we'll see that that's a, uh, a, the impact of what the father <clears throat> But I want to notice something. I want to look at verse 2. It says, Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. And every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth, that it might bring more fruit. This is the, the section that we're folks start to diverge. And let me, let me tell you, there are those that say this. See? This is saying that a person who is a branch in Jesus can be taken away. And if you look at verse 6, it's cast in the fire. So obviously that means that they could lose their salvation and go to hell. And then there are some folks who say, no, 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 no. This is just talking about the fact that there are some people in the church because what it says in me really just means people associated with Christianity. And it means some people won't, won't, won't get to heaven, won't be saved, and some will. I have to be honest. That's what I've done in my life. And I think that, that um, quite frankly, it's uh, uh, not correct. I'll tell you why I say that. The word in me Every other example in the New Testament is speaking about people who have an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. So how could it be that in me here is the one time that it doesn't mean a person who is saved? I don't believe it can. So then the folks who say you can lose your salvation say, see, it is people who are there, but then they get taken away. Uh-oh, sounds confusing, right? Well, I believe the, the use of the word taken away is actually not the best interpretation of the word that is there in the original language. That word is arrow, A-I-R-O. And what does that word mean? What's the primary meaning of that word? To lift up. Now, it can be used to lift up to throw away, but the primary simply is, is to take something and lift it up. Let's think about this. We're talking about the vine, right? It's, it, to the Jew, that's about growing the grapes for the wine, the vines, right? What was a practice culturally at that time when they were for the vine dressers? Well, they had a branch that wasn't producing. Maybe it was getting blocked for the sun or it wasn't getting... They would lift up those branches they would tie it up so that it was lifted up and then it would begin to produce fruit. So let's look at that verse now with that understanding of the word arrow. As every branch of me that beareth not fruit, I lift up. I'm going to encourage them. He's going to give them or someone to come alongside to help them to grow so they can produce fruit. And every branch that already beareth that fruit, he's going to purges. And purges actually means to prune. It's the same as what we do with our plants and trees here. You cut it so it can produce more. I believe that 
This passage, the first five verses, are exclusively speaking about those who are believers. Because as you look throughout those passages, it says this, Abide in me, he that abideth in me. I, right? We're talking about abiding in me. That expression, in me, is throughout those verses. Also, remember, he's talking to the disciples, correct? What did he tell Peter when Peter said, not just my feet, everything? He said, you are already clean, right? Comes back, he reminds him, you're already clean. You're already mine. You're already in me. Okay? Okay. I want you then to take a look at verse 6. Verse 6 says, and abideth what? Not in me. There's something very interesting. That, the word if there, and yet you've, I know you've heard Brother Truman, but that word if actually is a, setting up a comparative. And it's comparing to everything that went before within this passage. So, truthfully, the unsaved person, or the one who is not a believer, is in verse 6. If a man abideth what? Not in me. Not in me means he's not in with... uh, 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 He doesn't have a saving nation. He's cast forth as a branch and withered, and Ben gathered them and cast them into the fire. Something also really interesting about verse 6. Verse 6, in some of the earliest texts on this verse, the word that is a specific. That some of these earlier theologians referred to. So fresh in the minds of the disciples. Judas was never, never, never accepted Christ as the Messiah. He said, man, or if man, and they do the... Okay. So, I believe there's two truths here. It does not support the concept that you can lose your salvation whatsoever. For it's impossible for those who were once enlightened, that's an interesting word, and have tasted of the heavenly gift, and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost, and have tasted the good word of God, and the powers of the world to come, if they shall fall away to renew them again into repentance, seeing they crucify themselves the Son of God. Who's the... He's writing to Messianic Jews. And those Jews right now are facing persecution and apostasy. There are those that were among them who were Jewish, but now they were saying, yes, Jesus is okay, but we need to also be circumcised. You have to do the festivals. You have to do all, or else you're not really truly saved. So the, 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 the context of this is, remain strong in their faith to this perseverance and that they should be assured of their salvation. Didn't want them to fall prey to the apostasy. And what's really interesting that they use this verse because passage in Hebrews, if you just look at verse 11, it kind of summarizes what's going on. And here's what verse 11 says. And we desire that every one of you do show the same diligence to the what? The full assurance of the hope, right, until the end. It basically is, uh, this whole passage is about the assurance, the eternal assurance of, of the believer. And yet, they pull the verses out, and then they look at some words and they say, oh, geez, you know. This. But let's look through that. It's impossible, and impossible really means unable to be done. It's Also, I'll point out the tense on this. I won't go too far on that. But let's look at the words. 
for those who were once enlightened. In the English, that sounds pretty good, right? When we look at the Greek, it simply means to imbue with knowledge. It's simply the cognitive. They simply have been given the information, and okay, that's, that sounds good. Okay, But look at the next one, Steve. But they've tasted of the heavenly gift. That sounds to me like they've really got it, right? Well, that word tasted means to perceive the flavor of not fully ingested. I know, speaking at a Baptist church, you guys have never gone to a wine testing. But when you walk to go to a wine testing, the first two things they do is they put two cups in front of you. One is filled with water, and one is empty. And they bring you this little teeny bit of wine, and you put it in your mouth, and like a little kid, you swish it around. Oh, you get the taste of it. But what are you supposed to do next? You spit it out into the empty cup, and even beyond that, you take that water, you swish it around to clear it out, it's in your mouth out, and you spit that back into the cup. That's what that word means. They just tasted it. It never was fully digested by them. It was never something that sunk deep into their heart with regard to it. Well, Steve, there's another word there that could be problematic. What about partakers? They're partaking of the Holy Spirit. Word means to be sharing in, which sounds okay, but it means simply to be a participant in the activities. You know, people can come here to church, right? They can participate in our activities, but they may not be saved, right? It's not that they're really the folks that are a part of that activity. And this partaker simply means that they actually just are participating. There's not a deep felt commitment to it. He talks about the powers of the world to come, and that's in some cases, some uh, expositors said, you know, back at that time they saw miracles. Uh, okay. But what's it mean, though, they could fall away? Right? The better way to translate verse 6, where it says, if they shall fall away, the Greek actually said, not a potential. It's actually written in such a way that these folks, they do fall away. Right? And when we see the word, we think, well, maybe they fall away. Maybe. But actually the word there says they fall away. It's, 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 with regards to it. Now the word fall away is very interesting because it means to fall beside a person or a thing, but you're not on the exact same path. You're near Maybe they're walking onto the side to you, but the same path that you are. Okay, or it could mean that they literally, um, if you're walking them side by side, and then the path comes to a fork, they went one way and you went the other way. Okay, but it doesn't imply in any way, shape, or form that those people were aligned and on the exact same path as the other. It means that they're close but they weren't on the same path as the other person. <clears throat> they were never, ever true believers. If you look at those words, they had cognitive, right? Played around and, you know, they saw there was some good to it. And they participated, but there was never that deep commitment to what they, what they were saying. They were saying about how they twisted the word for their advantage with regards to it. These are people that had moved from Judaism right up to the edge of Christianity. They even may have, you know, repented from some behaviors and things like that, but they didn't fully commit and submit to faith in Jesus Christ. <clears throat> There's a learning from this that I, I want to share with you. I'm going to quote MacArthur on it again. Stays on the edge, the more he leans toward the old life. Staying there too long inevitably results in falling away from the gospel forever. It may not be and is often not a conscious decision against Christ, but it's a decision 
And it is a decision against Christ. When a person goes away from him in full light, he places him on the cross again in his own heart and puts himself forever out of reach. How terribly serious it is to reject Christ. Let's go to the next one. Let's look at here. And this is actually a um, continuation of the verses we just looked at. And sometimes the folks that would say you can lose your salvation look at these verses and they say, ah, oh, see there, there's proof you could lose your salvation. And it says, For the earth which drinketh in the rain that cometh off upon it and bringeth forth herbs and meat for them by whom it's addressed receiveth blessings from the and briars is rejected, and it is nigh but cursing, whose end is to be burned. They see there's a piece of ground, and it was producing good, you know, plants that produced herbs and food, but now it's not. That's not what the analogy is saying whatsoever. <clears throat> what it's really saying, all hear the gospel, all who hear the gospel are like the earth, right? Rain falls across the whole earth, right? And that reflects that people hear the gospel. There's people here, there's people here, they hear the gospel. The rain comes down and falls on them, right? Some of those folks respond, right, from the rain and to, to Christ, and they produce the good fruit. Some of the other folks hear the same thing, but what happens to them? Thorns and weeds. They don't accept the interference. They reject the offer of life that is provided in the gospel, and they basically become only good for burning at that time. <clears throat> Let's look at two, Second Peter. <clears throat> Excuse me again. For if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world, through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. They are again entangled therein and overcome. The latter end is worse for them than the beginning. For it had been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than after they had known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered unto them. But it has happened unto them according to the true proverb, the dog is turned to his own Here's writing to believers that are in a, a, a pagan culture up in what today would be northeastern Tur Turkey. And they're again getting persecuted from Jews as well as the pagan religious communities. And the context of the message, this passage in the scripture, is God's grace to protect true believers from apostasy, false teachers. And that they are to grow in their knowledge of God to protect themselves from the false teachers. And this verse in particular comes right out of a section describing who the false teachers are. So, let's look at this. For they have escaped. The word escape there means to flee from. It doesn't mean to flee to something. There's a completely different word for that. So they're simply seeing the knowledge, and we'll talk about that, they're seeing what this, the Christianity and what it's teaching will help them get out of some of this that they're caught up in. And what are they caught in? Well, it's the pollutions. Okay? And that word means that which defiles, defilement, and it means that which corrupts. So it's taken there and they feel that they've got a, their life may be better. And what was it that did it? Well, it was the knowledge. It's called the ep Epinosis, epinosis, and you know that gnosis simply means knowledge. Epi means it's the precise and correct knowledge, and in the New Testament, it always refers to ethical and divine. It's divine knowledge. And what it's really saying is they heard truth about who Jesus was, you know, and what that meant for life, and they kind of thought that was nice and decided, let's, you know, I, I'm going to look into this further. Right? However, it then says that they become entangled. The word entangled means to be interwoven. If you've ever seen how they make 
woven cloth. It's very much planned. It's very much intentional. You know, you got to do this, you do that, and then this comes down. Everything is really organized and structured. It's not haphazard. It's not as if they, um, oops, threw some string and it got all tangled up. It's literally, they're saying that this was very organized and structured on their part to get back into the pollution. And then it talks about overcome, and that simply means to become the property of or to come under the power of. So these people now were completely given over to Satan and, and, and sin. We get a quick drink. Dry mouth is tough. Okay. These folks were attracted to Christian life. It found beneficial to them, but it was simply on this cognitive level, right, with regards that there wasn't any depth, it wasn't the whole person. And then they started to manipulate it for themselves serving, and these are who the apostates were that were teaching falsehood. You'll notice in this that there's no mention really of them having faith. It talks about what they did. Yeah, they, 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 they studied it, but then they got entangled and overcome with it, right? And John, 1 John 5, 4 through 5, when we're talking about being overcome, that says, for whoever, whosoever is born of God overcometh the world. Well, the world is that pollution he's talking about. And this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. Who is he that overcometh the world? But he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God. These folks never accepted Jesus as the Son of God. And verse 21 really is, is, is where um, most a lot theologians use that to say that there are different degrees of hell, that it, there are areas where certain people are, it's much even worse than what we could imagine with regards to it. I look at a real-life example of that. And, you know, most of you know I moved down from North Carolina. In the University of North Carolina, the fellow who is in charge Ahead uh, of their religious studies is a guy named Bert Ehrman. Graduated from honors from Moody Theological uh, Seminary. He, the college that, he's had mul- gets multiple degrees, actually from other seminaries, right? However, Bert brags that he has a list that every year the, the freshman students, when they take a religious course, the ones that he finds out are born-again Christians, he tries to convert them into atheists. And he's so smart about Scripture, he twists things to show them and gets these young people confused. And he brags about he has like an 80% or some you know, percentage of being able to convince young people that Christianity is not true. Right? This is Bert Ehrman is talking about right here, okay? I also think those in the prosperity gospel are this way, and all these folks, you know, with all the stuff going on with the, with the woke and the homosexuality and sex, this is a truth. Because there's ministers supporting that at this time, right? The word, though, says to turn from, okay? Where they've turned, what they've turned from, right? To the vomit again, right? The word turn from literally means to disassociate from. So they're not even no longer with those other believers. They've actually gone and tried to attract them away from the other believers. And why do I say these folks were never saved? What are they called? Dogs and pigs. Both are considered unclean animals to the Jews. Right? They were never anything but a dog or a pig. They were unclean and never saved. Okay. Let's go to James. James 5, 19 to 20. Brethren, if any of you do err from the truth and one convert him, let him know that he that converteth the sinner from the error of his way shall save a soul from death and shall hide a multitude of sins. Right? This is James talking to, again, to a dispersed Jewish profession, professing believers. They're needing instruction. They're, they're out. They've been dispersed and you may not have all of the, the teaching that whatnot. But James is also talking to them about confronting those with a false faith. In James, he talks about a living faith and a dead faith. And that's the intent here that 
Make sure that you understand who those folks are with that falsehood. And it's the context of this, it's the closing that he's given in that whole, his whole letter on living a life of genuine faith. So, those that use this to say you can lose your salvation say, see, brethren, right? Um, that means they were believers. Well, it might. But the word brethren has multiple meanings. It could mean just fellow Jews or, you know, people of the same origin. Or it could mean just the folks that are in a group together, right? And it can mean a fellow believer, right? It says, if any of you do err, and err, the actual word there means to go astray, to stray away from. Okay? And the word convert means to bring back. Okay? Um, so you can say, well, Jesus, does that sound like what they're saying? You know, they went astray, they weren't, you know, they weren't saved, and now they came back. Well, there's two interpretations of this, uh, and from two, uh, well, two different camps that I respect uh, both of the, uh, the folks. Uh, Moody would say that this is restoring a wayward believer. Okay? I tend to lean more towards the, what's the, 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 the writer in the Believer's Bible Commentary because he says this is James calling true believers to evangelize the lost in the midst of their fellowship. Churches have those in the midst who are not saved and are not true believers. And we as true believers have the responsibility to make sure we share the gospel with those in our fellowship who may be lost. We have a responsibility to those around us to make sure that they know Christ. And that might mean a little bit of confrontation on occasion, potentially. But it's a confrontation not based on, look how much I love you. Right? I want to make sure that when I'm in heaven, I'm going to, you're going to be there with me with regards to it. But this is not a you can lose your salvation. Reason why I say that? Well, the word sinner there, it's a word that means preeminently sinful and especially wicked, and it talks about a complete lifestyle. Doesn't sound like that person um, was one of the believers. And to save, it talks about the punitive wrath of God. So that's why I tend to lean towards the believer's Bible commentary, that this is for us to be the folks that are amongst us. And when I look at it and everybody says, oh, everybody, and I'm not saying that here, but saved, right? So I don't have to worry about it. Well, this scripture would tell us, no, we should be making sure that all of our friends and folks who we worship with know the Lord with regards to it. Last one, and I'm going to go really quick on this. They use the word destroy, and actually the, the word for destroy and perish is the exact same word. I'm not sure why uh, they use differently, but it, it, the word destroy simply means either to put away completely or it means to render useless. We have to recognize that these two scriptures, the audience that are being written to are to mature believers. And they're talking about their interactions in this passage, so you don't just look at the, that one verse, that their interactions with new believers or immature believers, right? And the context is, is that our interactions should be love amongst believers, right? And Barry told us that we should set aside our, our, our freedoms and our liberty where we might be able to do something because it might cause that person to stumble, right? What it means there is you could create confusion for them or disillusion or get them sidetracked and potentially stunt their growth, right? Um, it might also mean that the person who is there with you really isn't truly saved and your behavior has caused them to say, what hypocrites? I, I'm not going to... I'll give you an example, uh, a, a funny uh, example of my life. My grandfather was the teaching elder at a Plymouth Brethren church. And they only, for communion, used wine. But they also were very, you don't drink, you don't smoke, you don't do this, right? And you don't date the girls that do, right? And 
before church, I was staying, at, you know, visiting with him, and we had drive. And the night, excuse me, the day before, he had to pull up to this place and get a bottle of wine. And he goes, "I just want to let you know, I only go here for because it's worth this and what." You know, he was so concerned that I was going to think, "Oh, look, Grandpa's a drinker. I'm going to go be a drinker, right?" But, um, but that's kind of the idea behind it. I mean, I think his was a little bit, you know, maybe a little legalistic, but. It, it, it was a concern for me that I saw something that might conflict with the teachings that he had. Right? We don't want anybody to be stunned. We want them to achieve what God has done for that. But these are not talking about losing salvation. So let me summarize what we've talked about so far. The verses that you sometimes will find people trying to use that you lose salvation refer to the lost and apostates who appeared or maybe at time appeared to be followers of Christ, but were never genuine or not genuine. It doesn't refer to losing your salvation or that theoretical postulate I talked to you about at the beginning. And none of these verses contradict the overwhelming Scripture in support of eternal security. I know we covered a lot, and my voice made it through. Uh, but it's my hope that this study has reinforced or given you a stronger appreciation of your eternal assurance of your salvation, both today and two weeks earlier. However, that assumes everyone hearing my message is saved. And if you're not assured that you're going to receive that inheritance of eternal life with our Lord and Savior, speak with me or, or some, someone else here that you feel comfortable with and make sure that you've got that assurance, right? And I'd encourage you, dig into these verses yourself. You know, this study for me was very, very impactful. Um, and I would tell you to dig into your, your Bibles and, 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 and be sure of, the, of your salvation. In closing, I'm going to ask that we sing a song together called Blessed Assurance. I think it's appropriate. And I've asked Bob and, and Roberto to come on up. But before, while they're coming up, let me close this in prayer, please. Okay? Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, how we thank you for your word. Lord, and I trust that you 